0: Welcome to Undiscarded Stories of New York, a podcast brought to you by the City Reliquary Museum and Civic Organization in Brooklyn. My guest today is proud Brooklyn native Richie Narvaez, the celebrated and award-winning author of books including the short story collections Noir Rican and Roach Killer and the novels Holly Hernandez and the Death of Disco and Hipster Death Rattle.
1: I am a New Eurekan, which means that my parents were Puerto Rican. Um, I, You know, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and it, New Eurekan is one of those uh, labels that, that we use uh, for someone who's fairly uh, Americanized, and a New Yorker as well as a Puerto Rican.
0: And you're right from around here. You grew up in Williamsburg, actually.
1: Yes, I was uh, born in Greenpoint Hospital, which is on the edge of Williamsburg. And I was raised on South 2nd Street between Bedford and Barrie, which is about six blocks from here. And I was raised in the 70s and 80s uh, in in uh, the South Side, or Los Sures, as we used to say. Richie
0: is here to talk about one of the more unusual items in the reliquary's collection, and that's saying a lot. It's an object that originally stood in the window of La Vegeta, a Mexican bakery that operated on the corner of Bedford Avenue and Grand Street in Williamsburg for many years until finally closing in
1: 2013. Vegeta was uh, a Mexican-owned bakery, mm-hmm. yep. um, and they were just like uh, uh, my people, the Puerto Ricans, they came here trying to make it. Uh, but
0: Alfonso Souza and Bell, yeah. and they, I think, were in business for 17 years. What we're looking at is a cake, a fake cake, actually, a large construction of styrofoam and cardboard covered with real icing. And I have to say, this cake at least in its current condition, is definitely striking. But I wouldn't exactly call it beautiful. Usually it's in the front room, and it's kind of the centerpiece right when you walk in. Uh, It commands curiosity instantly when you see it. Today we've moved it down next to us so we can get a better look at it. I had imagined once upon a time maybe it was white, with a couple of pastel colors. Possibly,
1: possibly. Yeah, I think we'd, you'd have to do some uh, archeological digging inside to find <laughs> out what it really was once.
0: So what it is, is a three-tier display cake. And it's like ornately decorated with pipe icing. You know, I could imagine that icing being a really rich buttercream, mm. full of sugar,
1: right? Yes, uh, <laughs> larded with sugar. Uh, it has this lovely tulle, I guess is what this material is. It's all around it, like a skirt. Uh, it's sort of gorgeously grotesque uh, because this thing must be ten years old by now. The the uh, the store where it came from, the bakery La Villita, uh, closed in two thousand thirteen, uh, so it's got to be at least that old, right? It is. I mean, it
0: could be from the eighties. We could, don't know. Oh my Who god! Uh, so <laughs> it looks like it. <laughs> yeah,
1: it looks like it's from the eighties. Uh, except, uh, wow, yeah. So it, it's got this brownish, reddish tint, whatever it was, that's what it became. It became, it looked like it might have had some mold at some point. A little (laughs) bit because you described this lovely tool,
0: but it's not actually very lovely. No, it's it's,
1: not. It's it's kind
0: (laughs) of gross and covered with dirt. They've done their Best to preserve it. Mm-hmm. I think, what did he say? Uh, originally, it was like a coarse styrofoam with icing on top mm-hmm. and the owners used to update these, but this of course has been frozen in time.
1: Yes, this has not been, uh, normally a cake like this would have been chucked, uh, but this one has been here in the museum, I don't know how many years, but yeah, it's a fascinating piece of time.
0: And atop this rather outlandish sugar pile is an even more outlandish figure a plastic doll in the shape of a near-naked woman.
1: The the most remarkable thing, of course, about it is sitting atop... Rather daintily, uh, is almost like a pinup doll, right? Very much like come a pin-up. hither. Oh my god, just uh, yeah, pose. Oh, that's so yeah, and I guess that was meant to entice people, uh, sort of a cupcake on top of a cake. Uh, so she's uh, there's a, a, a doll of a woman, uh, a brunette, just in case people are curious, in a see through dolly. Uh, uh, um, what do they call the kind of nightgown? Uh, just uh, uh, a nighty. a nighty. I guess, nightie. a
0: nightgown, yeah. night 1950s, yeah,
1: (laughs) And she's looking rather coquettish uh, atop the cake. Uh, And this is the way uh, she was displayed in front of La Vigita.
0: For those of you not able to look at the photographs of this cake on our website, and you really should do that later, I need to make sure you're picturing this woman properly. She's not a small, demure plastic sculpture like you might see on top of a pristine white wedding cake, but rather a full-on adult cartoon pinup looking somewhere between Betty Page and Betty Boop, sitting in a boudoir pose with her ample chest and backside on full display beneath her completely transparent nightgown. She's also quite large, taking up around half of the total real estate on top of her cake. In the many years she was sitting in the window of La Vegeta, she became kind of a neighborhood mascot. And somewhere along the way, she acquired the name Zosa, spelled X-O-X-A.
1: It's funny enough. So I went to, I I said I had gone to college in the 80s and I came back in the 90s. So I started hanging, I I moved to a different part of the area uh, over across the BQE, uh, which separates Williamsburg straight through in the middle. Thank you, Robert Moses. So uh, I was on the other side, but I was dating someone who was over on this side by the Williamsburg Bridge over by the water. And I would pass by uh, a Vegeta every once in a while. And I would go and get an egg sandwich. And I would see um, Sosa and her companion. Uh, I forget his name. Is... Uh,
0: his name was apparently Marcus Canalingus And this was... Uh, <laughs> they were anointed this by hmm. Ramez Kala, which was, uh, I think, a Latin blog zine at the time. Yeah. And it evolved into a big... Latin media company.
1: Right, remescla. Uh
0: I just want to correct her boyfriend's name. It's not Marcus, it's Marsilius. Marsilius.
1: <laughs> so they, they uh, I guess they, they ended up loving her. They must have lived nearby. But yes. Yeah, so she had a companion, uh, sort of like uh, the Ken to her Barbie. Mm-hmm. And you would see them in the window, uh, not quite in this state of disarray. The cake weren't, was, wasn't this far gone, but you would see them in the window quite often. And uh, there's a weird push-pull, uh, because uh, it, the food was great, but also, uh, like in a lot of bakeries that have cake displays that last a while, it's almost uh, uh, almost like a warning, like, oh, you should change that. So there was a weird thing, but the thing is, inside the store, it was a really uh, a lovely bakery. It's very typical of, of the area. They had, uh, I, my favorite thing was the egg sandwiches and the sandwiches. They used a the thing that I grew up with um, in a lot of Puerto Rican uh, cooking, the plancha. Mm. Uh, which in iron. So they would iron the sandwiches. Uh, I don't know if you, you've ever, you've probably seen one, where it's yeah. two, two big things of metal, and they usually line it with aluminum. And they would put the sandwiches in there, and they would just like, they would flatten them, and it would be delicious, crunchy on the outside. And easy on the wallet. Yes. Oh, yeah. Very inexpensive.
0: As Williamsburg shifted over the course of the 90s and 2000s, Puerto Rican and Mexican families were displaced first by a wave of young artists and creatives and then by rich white people. Ramezcla, the blog we mentioned earlier, covered the shift from a Latino perspective. And they adopted our friend Zosia, the dessert pinup, as their mascot, making her a symbol of the local color that gentrification threatened to displace. For several years they even gave out Zosha Awards to their favorite people and places in the neighborhood. So when you look at this artifact, ah. you know, in all its ugly glory, how do you feel? Like what does it bring up in
1: you? Oh, it brings oh I could I could write all these things about it. The thing is partly is itself in its own grotesquery is kind of wonderful, also kind of Kitschy, in a sense, uh, kitschy in that way that part of what attracted, I think, a lot of the artists to the neighborhood was they looked on uh, the blue collar people working here as sort of this um, uh, kitschy, tacky blue collar people. They, I think, they, they they very much condescended and patronized towards the, the people who lived in the neighborhood. Uh, so this kind of symbolizes that. But at the same time, I'm try- I, as I try to get into the mindset of Alfonso, uh, I can see he just. He must have had a quirky sense of humor because if you're going to run a family bakery, <laughs> and you have a little a, a, a nude a, wo- a nude woman uh, in a, in a dolly, just you know, just sort of uh, you know, as a her co- nipples are also like brightly oh, yeah, painted. I, I, I think I, it's been touched up. I a didn't little. want to mention her nipples, yes, but they <laughs> might have been uh, either maybe she did it herself, but uh, likely it was Alfonso or maybe his wife, but somebody touched up. Uh, that And the thing is, Family Bakery, you, I, what, what I, I, as I was thinking about this, it's like, this would not go in Park Slope. <laughs> in Park Slope, the mothers would be, oh my God, you can't have that in the window. But there's something about Williamsburg, which is a little bit of a, it's always been a little bit of a rougher town. Uh, it would be more uh, cute and, and, and not taken seriously. Certainly, uh, I, my mother would have just giggled. And, and go on inside for some coffee.
0: Well, it's definitely a good marketing ploy because yeah. when I was doing my research on the bakery, all I kept seeing was people mentioning the cake toppers and the display windows. Mm-hmm. So Alfonso was on to something.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, uh, it, uh, it, it might if it was made today, it might have ended up a meme. <laughs> or something certainly would have ended up on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, somebody would have talked about, oh, my God, look at this cake display. Uh, but, you know, as it was, it was just a great way to get word of mouth uh, and people to know that's the bakery with the nude lady in the window with her companion, um, Mr. uh, who was uh, oh used to sit right next to her on another cake. Um Yeah, but it's sad when I think, you know, I remember when it came in there and I was so happy that there were Latino businesses starting in the area because I had seen gentrification. I was like, oh, good, hey, new Latino business, great. Uh, But I think like many businesses that started then, it's really hard for, uh, given the uh, uh, Williamsburg where there's high turnover of interest and all this conspicuous consumerism in this area – it's 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 a wonder it lasted. It's great that it lasted. It had a corner spot. Amazing. Yes. Prime spot. Prime spot. And now it's a salt and charcoal fancy restaurant. So uh, what do you think
0: attracted your community to this area to begin with?
1: Ah, well, that has to do with... Williamsburg used to be a fancy schmancy place in the 1800s. This is where the rich were. This, this It was its own city, Williamsburg, at one mm-hmm. point. But at turn of the century... Uh, early 1900s, they built that Williamsburg Bridge that Mm -hmm. you may notice outside the window. So (laughs) that changed everything because that made the neighborhood uh, accessible to uh, Manhattan. And -hmm. then they started building factories like crazy. So all of a sudden it became a Working-class, blue-collar town.
0: There are a lot of factories, if I recall. Now yeah. they've all been renamed as bars and clubs. <laughs> right, they've
1: all been converted. They got uh, into lofts. First, they got converted. I remember there were uh, lofts in the 80s, and then they got converted. Now they're all fancy restaurants mm-hmm. and everything. But yes, that uh, that uh, all the factories are attracted a lot of people coming to to, the, to New York City for the first time. I think Puerto Rican started coming in. They, they were, there was the uh, Prince Spaghetti Factory, oh. the Schaefer Factory. Uh, and a few the factories over, and Domino's, mm-hmm. the Domino's sugar factory. Domino's over sugar by the- factory is huge. <laughs> right, which is now, I think, a big complex of I think they're or-
0: developing it, yeah. and they're really trying to preserve some of the interior. Like, they're okay. really, they've hired, I read something in the New York Times, where they've hired, like, very, some architects who are really mm-hmm. trying to work hard with some, to maintain some of the facade. Okay. Obviously, they got a. You know, it was a, a sugar right. factory. They right. gotta, you know, but yeah. they're trying to maintain some of the looks, at least in the lobby.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure they, that Domino Sugar sign outside is sort of a historic part of this, uh, the landscape out here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, uh, my people came here because there was factory work. Uh, and stuff. My mother first moved in Rutledge Street. Mm-hmm. That's where we first lived. And now that's a, a Hasidic enclave. This, mm-hmm. uh, they wouldn't allow us to move in there now. But um, we moved there first and then she moved over to South 2nd Street and we lived there for many, many years. I'm surprised as I was working around how many of the old uh, houses are still around. Uh, some of them look in great shape. Some of them look, uh-oh, any moment once this goes. But uh, there are still, by the way, I mean, uh, Despite gentrification, there are still pockets of Puerto Ricans that live in this area. I know a lot of people moved out. They wanted just some people just wanted to get away. Some people did well, and they wanted to move to the suburbs, which is the part of the American mm-hmm. uh, uh, ideal. But uh, there are some people still here, and you can still hear salsa music and uh, aguinaldos during Christmas season uh, through the windows. So it's mm-hmm. not we're not completely gone from the neighborhood. So. <sighs>
0: Can you describe what it was like for you growing up in this neighborhood? Oh. You've given me a little taste already,
1: but how many, um, you know, Spanish owned businesses were they? Oh, well, there weren't that many actually. Well, Uh, We had a bodega on the corner uh, Mm -hmm. on South 2nd and Bedford. uh, And there would be little bodegas here and there. But Mm -hmm. a lot of them, uh, a lot of stores were mostly still owned by Polish and Irish. Uh, All of us used to go to Havermeyer Street Mm -hmm. uh, to buy clothes. Like, that's where I got my clothes for my graduation in junior high school. And that was… Down there? <laughs> right over there. And there was, uh, they were all still Jewish-owned uh, mm-hmm. stores. So the Puerto Ricans hadn't bought a lot of stuff, which I think, uh, unfortunately, that's one of the reasons that uh, it, it allows them to be gentrified. They didn't stick the land. You were, it's all about property in New York City. But uh, growing up, though, I was surrounded by Puerto Ricans. Williamsburg is divided into uh, two sides. There's south, the, the south side and then the north side. So it's south first, south second, south third. So we call it uh, the south side, or in Spanish, los sures, which is just the south. Los sures. Yeah. And that comes from the Puerto Ricans who started moving in, uh, my people, who started moving in in the 40s, 50s, and a big time in the 60s. And we basically dominated the south side of the neighborhood it was a very Puerto Rican feel On South 2nd Street, which as I walk down today, I realize is tiny. <laughs> but back then, of course, it was a giant, giant street to me. And uh, somebody on the block had brought in a rooster. So every morning during the first few years I remember growing up, we would hear a rooster, we have a rooster waking us up. It would be on their balcony. Or Whether their, you their,
0: wanted their, it to or not. Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> but it was, my mother loved it because it reminded her of the countryside back in Ponce where she grew up in Puerto Rico. But it was, uh, it was great. I mean, we had block parties. Uh, the city actually used to close off blocks in the summer and bring food to people. Uh, we used to have free summer lunches. I went to PS84. I loved going there. I went to junior high school, 50. Uh, and then eventually went to Brooklyn Tech. But... Uh, but I, I loved it. It was very, it was a wonderful experience. So
0: why did you decide not to live here anymore? You're up in the Bronx now. I'm
1: up in the Bronx now. Well, I basically got priced out. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a nice little apartment. Uh, I enjoyed it, but everything was getting much more expensive to live here. I was sort of living uh, in a sense, I was living an artistic life uh, on the edge. You're a writer. <laughs> yeah, I'm a writer. And then, but uh, I ended up getting engaged and I said, well, I can't, uh, I, uh, it's too small an apartment. So eventually moved uh, to the boogie down Bronx, Mm -hmm. which uh, I have to say is like Williamsburg used to be. Uh, it's a. It, it, we walk down Williamsburg. There are people everywhere. It's it's a crowded neighborhood. In the Bronx, you can still walk around. Nice air. You can still see the sky. Uh, it hasn't been filled with condos yet. So. Yet,
0: yet, yet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So in a way, you kind of gravitated towards the kind of neighborhood that you were used to. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, I went. I, I found something. Uh, I think mostly by chance, but it's like it was a really comfortable kind of area. Mm-hmm. So so far so good. So I have
0: to say, you know, you wrote a book specifically trying to articulate your rage
1: um, (laughs) at gentrification. Are you still that angry? Uh, You know what? So after college, I come back. I went to college in the 80s, came back to the neighborhood in the 90s. And at that point, the neighborhood started gentrifying. And this is the inspiration for Hipster Death Rattle. As the judge, I I saw what was happening in the neighborhood. I could could see the displacement. It was um, sort of like a slow motion accident happening. And I felt like there was nothing I could do. So I was just filled with bile and anger. And I was like, what can I do? So I I wanted to do, my only talent was writing. I said, I should write an incendiary novel that will change. Will alert people to this. But I didn't know how to write back then. A whole novel. It took me about ten more years to be able to come up with the right plot uh, to be able to say what I wanted about gentrification. So, um, and just by the way, so the plot of the book uh, is about a um, a serial killer using a machete. Uh, sort of in uh, culturally appropriating a machete in order to try to stop gentrification by increasing the crime so that nobody wants to move into the area. Uh, so it's about trying to track down that killer and also a, uh, a missing woman who uh, was being harassed by her landlord. So it's a lot about, uh, it's, very, it's in Williamsburg, it's very much about what's been happening in Williamsburg over the last 30, 40 years. People often think about writing as a kind of catharsis uh to get past something and i realized i just it just helped me sort of uh, understand it better but no it still it still gets me and sometimes when i walk around i it still i still i my heart still gets you know gets on fire in the '80s, the city was recovering, and they basically didn't pay attention to any of the poor neighborhoods. So large parts of the Bronx, of Queens, and Brooklyn were just left to lie fallow. The city didn't care; they were worried about Manhattan more than anything else. Uh, so when 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 the city doesn't care, when the government doesn't care, that's when it becomes vulnerable to developers. But uh, yeah, it was it, it was a um, it was a tough neighborhood. I was here during the blackout of 1977, and there was some looting uh, and some trouble. Uh, and We had gangs in the area, and we weren't supposed to go out at night. Uh, but it would have been nice that if there was a little bit of change, but not so massively uh, that has happened since It that used to day. be
0: quite an arty neighborhood, yeah. which I think started attracting in the 90s. And, right. You know, the cheaper rents, and, you know, people were moving there. And that's almost sometimes nice for a neighborhood to have that influx of artists. Yeah. But then...
1: <laughs> yeah, a little bit goes a long way. That's the whole thing about um, gentrification... It- what the neighborhood needed was development mm-hmm. uh, and, and some uh, some investment in it. Uh, there were, there were uh, a lot of Latinos here that were just sort of uh, left to their own devices. The city didn't care. Their pool had been falling apart, the McCarran pool over here. Uh, it was shut for many years. It was right? shut for many, many years. And so when the artists started moving in, all of a sudden, you know, Honestly, because of their um, skin color mostly, the the, the developers started paying a little bit more attention, thinking, oh, we should uh, invest in here a little bit more. And a little bit was good, but then it just escalated and escalated. And now um, most of the people I knew have been displaced and and pushed out, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's gentrification.
0: I don't want to pick at a wound, but what are some of your favorite places that have, are no longer here or could no longer be here? I mean, obviously we have the bakery, but...
1: Right, yeah, the bakery is such a sweet little place. Um, if, when I heard it was going, it was so sad. It's like, oh, I thought that would last. I thought it would make so much money on that corner that it would last. Uh, it mostly, I think they yeah. had almost like a request
0: for a $10,000 increase. Right, yeah, that's rent. what I heard too. It, yeah. was, it, was, an, it was a month.
1: huge and mm-hmm. like immediately there was no like dead you know like 6 months uh mm-hmm. to to find a new place we just get out mm-hmm. uh and it was really a sad day um uh there was some uh i think there it might still be there is a place that makes morisonando which is a this Puerto Rican shake with mm-hmm. orange juice and malta and an egg. Oh, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it's really supposed to be very invigorating for you. There was a couple of Cuchifrito stores. Cuchifrito mm-hmm. is this uh, super fried uh This is our sort of unhealthy but very (laughs) delicious food. Uh, There were more. I feel like
0: all the real delicious food, unfortunately, is unhealthy.
1: (laughs) I think one of them might still survive, but a a few of them have been gone from uh, under the um, from R.C. Avenue, Mm -hmm. Uh, the old movie theaters, Williamsburg Mm -hmm. Theater. I miss. Mm -hmm. Uh, I miss the way P.S. eighty four used to look. I think. I think it got all divided up Mm -hmm. and, and everything. My old block looks very different. There are these giant buildings. Uh, those finger buildings, you know, yes, that yes, kind of like cheap mm-hmm. construction that go fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look and,
0: very flammable whenever yeah. I see them. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you know? yeah, and
1: I think they look so jarring. Um, but other other than that, I mean, when I look at Williamsburg, when I walk around, it's mostly the people that I miss, and I think mostly I, I miss the feel of the neighborhood, uh, the comfort uh, of, of knowing uh, familiar faces and people I knew, and you know. Uh, uh, who were all like family. Because uh, one of the things, like going through the uh, the blackout together uh, and, gro- and going to school with everybody, the block parties that we used to have, it was in that sense, that Hillary Clinton thing that takes a village to raise, uh, it was the block was raising us. Everybody in the block knew you and we respected all the elders. So it was a really nice feeling not everybody came from the same town, but they, you know, you, you knew each other and you were struggling through the same things. So between the borders on South 2nd Street, between Bedford and Berry, that was like my town. And it felt very safe. And I felt like I knew everyone there. Yeah. And that's that has dissipated. Um, also playing stoop ball. Mm-hmm. I miss playing stoop ball, which you because I, I we had a nice big stoop. Mm-hmm. As you know, stoop ball. Do you know what that is? No, tell me about <laughs> it. You take. I've a, heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah, you A handball. Yeah, a handball, and then you bounce it off the stoop, mm-hmm. and it's basically it's like handball, but you bounce, and you, if you hit it good enough, it's yeah. like a home. Might run. break
0: some windows. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Certainly,
1: you would certainly break windows, and <laughs> somebody would come down if you hurt their car at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that stoop ball and that and all the playing in the street. Like mm-hmm. we, oh, we were in the street all the time. We would come in, and uh, mommy would say, "You smell like the street," because <laughs> you would, it would just be all over you uh, from from hanging out outside. Everywhere I turn, there were people I knew, and now it's mostly so many strangers. You know, so it's a strange. It's 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 not quite my home. It's not my home anymore.
0: How do you feel coming uh, to the neighborhood today? Is it as painful for you as it was in the nineties? Like, imagine in the nineties you were still very close to your childhood. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was no, it's not as actually as I think about it. No. I think uh some of those wounds may have healed. I hope.
0: That's good. Yeah. So now you're up in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um do you see Those forces at work and play in your neighborhood, or there's some neighborhoods I've been told that are just impervious to gentrification. (laughs)
1: Uh, I don't. Given the the current, maybe we shouldn't mention it right here on the show. (laughs) I know, like this place, and then boom, there were developers. I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think any neighborhood is gentrification proof. Uh, Certainly, anything that has uh, poorer people in it is super vulnerable. Uh, They've said for years, for example, that the South Bronx was never going to get gentrified because uh, nobody with money. Wanted to move to the Bronx because of the reputation it had from the 70s, it had of, a really bad reputation, yeah. yeah. Of the burning Bronx, which is really only a small part of it, but that's the part that got all the news. Uh, but, I know
0: that there have been a lot of artists and writers who are trying to, you know, dispel that image and be right? like, yeah. there's so much more to the Bronx than that. <laughs>
1: yeah. The one thing that's nice so, so the Bronx is the South Bronx has these giant development, this giant development going on right by the water, mm-hmm. uh, which is. Likely to gentrify it. However, there has been a heavy movement, which I wish we had had in Williamsburg. Uh, of uh, I think things are better now because of the internet. People can gather and share information much better now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're really trying to make sure that the Bronx, uh, all that a lot of at least some of the development is for the Bronx, not for somebody else coming in. You know that they keep it for themselves uh, and not and don't get displaced. So. Yeah, there are places in my neighborhood right now. uh, I I sense a little bit of it. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes like, oh, you, that's an unusual (laughs) person to move into the area, but that's okay. You know, it's, I mean, I think it's, people just need places to live and it's tough to find that. So you can't blame the people. They're just looking. But the thing is like, you always, I I am wary now of waves where I think, oh, that's completely different. Mm -hmm. You know, which I remember sensing when I walked down on Bedford Avenue one time and I walked past the El Cafe and I was like, oh, this is all of a sudden, this is St. Mark's place. This is very different. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I began sensing uh, things were going to to be definitely be different. So.
0: Mm-hmm. so why is it important for this cake to be in a museum?
1: Oh, that's, it's, it's, I think this cake symbolizes a moment, you know, this, it's, it, it's a crossover, it's, that kitsch factor is part of that gentrification, that artsiness, but it's also this ambition coming from uh, Alfonso of trying to make it in this, in this, in this city. And this mm-hmm. is, you might have called, we might not ne- necessarily call him artsy, mm-hmm. but this is his work of art. You know, and he's got a sense of humor. I think (laughs) Um, he's got a naughty little sense of humor, putting salsa on top. So I think that is this is a nice symbol of uh, of him and his bakery, but also of a moment where somebody could put this in the window and of his ambition to make it in this city. Uh, Yeah, and to it's it's also symbolic of. Uh, him not being able to make it as long as he wanted to, but he was here for a while. and it's sort of, I guess inevitable uh, because of the change of, of, of the neighborhood in the city that he didn't he didn't last forever, but it's still a wonderful uh, it wonderfully captures that moment uh, where he was where, where, where his ambition and his art was shining. I love Joja. I wish, I'm very happy that she's here and somebody's preserving her. Uh, I have to say, I wish the best of luck to Alfonso. I hope wherever he is, he's doing well. Uh, And I hope he has another Joja with him there. I hope uh, her partner maybe is is there too. And I wish him the best of luck. And I thank you, Tanya, for having me here to discuss this this wonderfully iconic cake. (laughs)
0: Definitely not one we want to taste. Right. Of. <laughs> not,
1: it's delicious, but intellectually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Richie. And I can't wait to read your books. <laughs> Thank Take you. care. Right. This has been Undiscarded, Stories of New York, a podcast brought to you by the City Reliquary Museum and Civic Organization in Brooklyn, New York in partnership with Citizen Racecar. My name is Tanya Muhammad, and I produce this show in collaboration with David Hoffman, who edits the stories. Post-production and original music by Jose Miguel Baez. Contributing producer Jacob Ford. Production manager Gabriela Montaquin. Outreach managers Sarah Shalantano and Condice Chantelou. You can learn more about Richie Narvaez and his brand of Latin Noir on his website at www.richienarvaez.com. Spelt R-I-C-H-I-E-N-A-R-V-A-E-Z. To learn more about the artifact in this episode, check out Undiscarded.org. And be sure to follow at City Reliquary on Instagram for facts and pictures. You can hear about the museum's mission, exhibits, and events at cityreliquary.org. Thank you so much for tuning in to this season of Undiscarded. We really enjoyed making this show and meeting all the colorful characters that make up New York. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and help spread the word. There are so many more stories to tell.